HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. I'm your host for today, Bob Valgenti. This series is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. Our fall season covers Gastronomica's newest issue, 23.3, now available online. This issue focuses on food and place. It tells the stories of lost places, explores the interplay of food and locality, and considers the social dimensions of concrete spaces, such as the kitchen, banquet hall, factory, winery, and supermarket. My guests this week are Chelsea Fisher and Clara Albacete. Chelsea Fisher is an anthropologist working to develop creative applications of community-engaged archaeology for understanding, mitigating, and resolving environmental justice conflicts. Her research is primarily based in Yucatan, Mexico, and she is Assistant Professor of Anthropology at the University of South Carolina. Clara Albacete recently graduated from Washington and Lee University with a degree in Environmental Studies. Her most recent research involving food studies was her senior honors thesis centered on yerba mate. She recently moved to Anchorage, Alaska, where the widespread activities of hunting and fishing have given her a new appreciation for the meaning of fresh and local food. Recently, Clara has entered the energy sector, where she does regulatory and compliance work. I want to thank both of you for joining us today, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. Happy to be here. Great. So let's begin with a little bit of background. Your co-authored article is titled, Ancient Greenwashing on Food Justice and Civilizations in the Supermarket. Could you tell us how your collaboration began and what led to your research on this particular topic? Yeah, so I am an archaeologist, and for a while I had been noticing when I would go food shopping that certain products on the supermarket shelves were making these references to the ancient past in ways that were really interesting to me. 
So quinoa talking about become an Inca emperor by eating this quinoa or chia seeds saying become like an Aztec warrior if you eat this chia. It really caught my attention. And so then because it was during COVID and we couldn't really go very much of anywhere during the summer, um, one of my students at the time, Clara, had done this really great work on tea. Clara, yeah. do you want to... Yeah, so as part of Chelsea's class, um, I wrote a research paper that was about green tea in India, China, and Japan, and like looking at the ancient forms of agriculture, of how it was grown, especially in Japan. And then I like went down this big rabbit hole of the history of the tea in those three different locations. And you know, Chelsea and I have sort of similar mindset when it comes to some of these things. We we like going into the nitty gritty and um, just learning about everything about a product so uh yeah she she asked me if I wanted to join in on the research and I was definitely like yeah that would be so exciting so that was how the collaboration came about yeah yeah I think I recognized in Clara a willingness like my own to jump down into rabbit holes and so when I asked do you want to go to a bunch of supermarkets and see if we can learn more about this thing which we started calling ancient greenwashing uh she was game and so that's how this began yeah, so that was definitely one of the questions that I had was, was sort of the, the origin story for this particular research, because there's one way in, in which it could begin from a more theoretical question, and then you go out into the wild of the supermarket to see if it's actually happening. But I think your experiences speaks to um, what many everyday consumers feel that they find or they recognize these phenomena that are happening uh, around them in the supermarket or other places. And then, of course, what makes the two of you good researchers is that you're willing to dive down that rabbit hole and ask the questions to figure out, well, why exactly is this appearing here? And oftentimes, with the difficult task of recognizing that there isn't, uh, you know, one author or one force beyond this, but oftentimes these these phenomena emerge uh, from various sectors, and it's one of the. So I wanted to to maybe jump into a little bit of what you say and what you argue in the essay, because you know, as you know, someone who researches and teaches myself. You know, oftentimes when I'm reading things, they fall into categories. There's, okay, that's generally interesting. And then there's the category of this is going to be really helpful for my research someday. And then there's the category of uh, this will be really great for me to use in class with my students because it does so much work uh, in, a, in a short period of time. And I think this is really one of the strengths of what you've written here, because as I read it, I saw that there's this wonderful theoretical component at the beginning. And then there's this historical element in the middle, and it's really a, asking us to, to, to use uh, anthropological and archaeological tools to reconceive of the histories that we've sort of just accepted. And then lastly, there's the great empirical research that you've done that's both quantitative and qualitative, um, and that, that, that allows those of us, you know, who might not be experts in these areas to nonetheless see the impact of your research in a place like a supermarket. So I wanted you to, to begin. Can you tell us about uh, the argument that you make, what you mean by ancient greenwashing and, and then how you, you put this together? Yeah, ancient greenwashing, as you can guess from what we decided to call that, it's building off of this other idea of greenwashing, which is marketing that's trying to get customers to think that buying a product is supporting sustainability in some way. 
when really on the ground, the story is much more complicated. With ancient greenwashing in particular, it's using references to ancient or pre-colonial civilizations to make customers feel like their purchases in some way are connecting them with this pre-colonial sustainable past. So while on the one hand, like it is interesting to see that a packet of cacao powder is talking about ancient Maya gods, what Claire and I argue in our article is that there are real consequences to this, that this kind of neat obliteration of what's really happening on the ground and importantly, what happened in the last 500 years as opposed to what happened a very long time ago, that taking that part out masks food injustices that continue to perpetuate in our food system. So it's our hope that by calling attention to the way that ancient greenwashing shows up in our grocery stores, that we can become more critically literate of these types of claims and recognize the ways that they're sort of seducing us into forgetting about colonial realities that are still around in our food systems and the ways that um, food injustices continue to be such a defining characteristic of our food systems, both here in the United States and internationally. Yeah, and it's like, and we, we talk about this in the article, but it's so easy to just skip over the more recent and even not even that recent history, honestly, if we're going back to colonialism, um, to jump back to like the ancient history and say, ah, oh, yes, this, this is the epitome of natural and feel good and being part of the earth and everything like that. And it's just, it's, you know, and for a lot of people that aren't really paying that much attention to the actual like environmental justice consequences of their food consumption and things like that, it's really, it's really easy to just buy into what you see, which I guess is, you know, the main point of greenwash, part of the main points of greenwashing is, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's easy. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, could you could you say a little bit more? I mean, because the way that you're using the the idea of ancient greenwashing goes well beyond the sustainability argument, because it's also a decolonial or an anti-colonial argument. Uh, it's also um, asking us to, uh, I think, in many ways, understand uh, the various levers that capitalism is using beyond just the realm of sustainability. So, could you talk? Uh, Perhaps a, a little bit more too about about that history that gets covered up, um, you know, because I, you know, in some ways, the way that, that the greenwashing, which oftentimes you know, we think of greenwashing in, in marketing, it's a way of maybe falsely advertising purported claims about uh, product sustainability. But here, what we're being uh, presented with is something that's much uh, much more historically and socially uh, problematic because in the name of transparency, here's a story about the ancient past or here's a story about the origin of this grain. Uh, you know, so what's seemingly giving us more information is actually, as, as you've both said, covering a lot, up a lot of what's going on. So, um, so what is it that, that gets hidden in this story or, or pushed aside? Because you do a good deal of of, of covering that, I think, in the first part of, in the second part of the paper. But in that first part, uh, particularly with the work that the, the concept of, of the plantation scene is doing. So maybe you could say something about that, too. 
so I guess like essentially what the plantation scene does is it um it's like when when we look at the the way that land has been used historically um and how colonialism basically forced forced this relationship between the people that worked the land and the land itself to um be much more negative than what it essentially was by like commodifying the the goods that like the people are producing on the land um and you know like we talk about how in uh Peru how the farmers there like they can't they can't even afford to like pay for their own quinoa that they're growing themselves right so it's like capitalism and colonialism going hand in hand create this dynamic between people and their own land that makes people unable to live off of their own land that they're you know that is their land um but it's like yeah to provide for people that are far away and detached from what's going on yeah and i'm i'm glad that you bring up the andes clara because i think that um with the quinoa example that you raised we see this point that so we cite in the article a point made by the scholars Eve Tuck and Marsha McKenzie, where they say that, quote, the most important aim in recasting land as property is to make it ahistorical. And what that means is that for these processes of environmental injustice to take place, there has to be this kind of uprooting of history from the land and an insertion often of a fictionalized narrative of that history. So Clara is bringing up this point about quinoa. When the United Nations declared 2013, the International Year of Quinoa, it created this boom in demand that was also being replicated in like the first Bud Light commercial of the Super Bowl that year and all these other just bursts of new products. Um, And what that did was it created this demand for quinoa, led all these quinoa farmers in the Highland Andes to double down on monocropping the crop to the point where a lot of them couldn't any longer afford to eat it, and it caused all this cascade of of problems. The Andes have already been the site of this kind of fabrication of narratives about the past. An example that we talk about in our article is with these um, race field rehabilitation projects that happened in the the 1980s and 1990s. Um, And what happened with this is this was a collaboration among archaeologists, different Uh, international relief organizations, governments, where there had been the discovery of all these raised field, relic raised fields around Lake Titicaca, dating back to the Tiwanaku Empire, so long even before the Inca. And there was this push to get indigenous farmers in the Andes to rehabilitate, to revive these ancient raised fields, that they had no personal contact with this technology. It had been abandoned by long and forgotten even by the time of the Inca. And so this project, it took millions of dollars. It created all these incentives to try to get Andean farmers to practice this form of ancient agriculture, but it ultimately failed because it had been deracinated from the meaningful history of the last 500 years of this plantation period that we talk about in our article Uh, that was much more meaningful for the relationship between these people and their land versus some ancient kind of mythological Mm -hmm. agricultural Uh, technology that had been uprooted from its context and 
and put in place. Yeah. yeah. And, and that seems to be the real insidious aspect of, of the phenomena that you're describing is not just that within the mechanism of capitalism, you know, uh, I, you know, content or material gets abstracted and then becomes infinitely exchangeable. It's also after it's you know, emptied of its context, context and made universal or exchangeable in a way, it's then replaced with a mythology and a mythology that's that's oftentimes uh, destructive, and is disseminated widely through you know often you know contexts where we aren't thinking about these issues. That is when we go and we buy some snack food, or we go and we we're, we're you know at the grocery store, or we're just kind of immersed in the general mythos uh, of our age. So that was one of the things that really fascinated me about that uh, that history that you just explained. Is this part of the mythos? So there's the kind of mythos of the superfood, right? And the powers of the superfood. Uh, and there's the kind of mythos of the, the allure and mysticism of ancient societies. But then there's also within this greenwashing context, a kind of myth of the past always being more sustainable. And if we could just do things the way that we or that others used to do them, we'd solve all the problems of modern technology. So could you say, uh, you've already explained uh, quite well how that, you know, ancient, very ancient technology that had been abandoned uh, was resuscitated with these, with these good intentions. But are there other ways in which that mythology uh, helps to cover up and distort what are some of the current injustices that are going on? Yes. So with that story, I was just telling you about the ancient race field rehabilitation. When archaeologists have worked more on understanding those fields, what they found was that the fields were not directly benefiting farmers. They were a tool of the empire to extract as much tribute as possible from these farmers. So what we see so often when archaeology gets wrapped up in these sustainability narratives is that there is a stripping away of all the political dimensions of sustainability. The beautiful thing about what archaeology is now able to do when it is deliberately aligning with anti-colonial methodologies is that it can show that sustainability in the past was always much more political than greenwashing would have us believe today. So the archaeological record is full of examples where past people were able to maintain some sort of sustainability in their food, but that essentially overnight empires, whether we're talking about the Roman Empire, the Aztec Empire, the colonial British Empire, they could essentially undo sustainability overnight. So something I think, I hope is a takeaway that anyone who engages with our article gets out of it is that sustainability in the past is extremely political. And unfortunately, the way that sustainability is marketed to us today, it's stripped of all of that political tension. Yeah, and I think you could see this in not even just food in so many different areas of like, life basically you know that I think people romanticize definitely the idea of like living off in the woods fully disconnected from the whole world and everything and it's like mm -hmm. yeah but who has like the privilege to do that kind of thing you know and um it's definitely yeah like like Chelsea said sustainability is simplified a lot in greenwashing and it doesn't really um address terms of 
accessibility either, which is also something that we like talked about in our article um, with the supermarkets that we visited, like the variety that we went to, um, and then something else that we noted, like um, in the Pittsburgh area, for example, how Whole Foods, it, it's not super representative of the neighborhood that it's in because it's the only Whole Foods in the area, so it's uh, the one that's accessed by people from lots of different neighborhoods that are coming from places with higher median income, things like that. So, um, yeah, it's just accessibility of sustainability is also a lot more complicated than greenwashing would have you believe. Yeah, and so I think right now, I think this is a good place uh, to maybe take a short break. Um, and in just what Clara, that you had just introduced, we can then, after the break, perhaps return to this idea of, of the supermarket as the place where we see this unfolding, and we can talk about all the really great empirical research that you have in the article. So why don't we just take a short break? Thanks. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we're back. So I thought this would be a good time for us to discuss uh, the empirical research uh, that you both did uh, online and in supermarkets to look at, at some of the examples of this ancient greenwashing. And I just want to uh, preface it with, you know, I think as many of our listeners might have experienced too, as I, you know, right after I finished reading your article, I, you know, as many of us do, I was looking through, I was scrolling on my phone and two things immediately popped up. One was someone had sent me a clip of a comedian who was talking about in his bit, the gentrification of snack foods. And one of the, the sort of telltale signs of this gentrification of snack foods is that you've got a value statement from the company on the one hand, and then you've got a history or an origin story of the product or the ingredient that's there. And the second was in my feed, something from BBC Earth that just popped up about, you know, in their series that's called Planet Fix. So how are we going to fix all the environmental problems? And of course, it's about uh, an ancient strain of maize grown in Mexico that has all of these properties. It's able to fix its own nitrogen in the soil and do all these things. But the language of that story very much, uh, exemplified, I think, what you reveal in your article. So I was, I was wondering if, we, if if you could tell us about uh, the products specifically that you were looking at that are, that are strong examples of what you describe as ancient greenwashing. Yeah, so our two like main, main subjects were chia and quinoa, which a lot of people know as uh, these fitness foods that have all of these really good 
properties that make you your best self as it's marketed. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And we also looked at um, foods like cacao and fonio, farro, and green tea. Um, And these are all foods that are categorized as superfoods. So the foods that make you your best self and also foods that have been around for a very long time that are termed as ancient grains um, the ones that are grains of course um, so those were our main subjects Chelsea if you want to say anything else about that yeah so the first step was kind of like since this had been something that I had just sort of been tracking when I would go grocery shopping because I love I love a label I love reading a label and get very distracted reading labels at grocery stores like Whole Foods that overwhelm you with these narratives that they give for their food. So what Claire and I first did, and she took the lead on this part, was to go through Amazon, like searching for these different foods on Amazon, and then documenting some of the different ancient greenwashing language that was used to market that food, either directly on the product or on its website. So in our article, we compile a long list of all of these different examples that we were able to find for these six different foods that we looked at that Clara mentioned. And it was really validating to see this list materialize because there's a pattern there. There's a definite pattern there. And once we had seen, okay, it's here, then we wanted to take it to the level of, well, how does food justice fit into this? How does access shape who is seeing the ancient greenwash food? Who can afford to buy it? Are there markedly different price points for these ancient greenwash foods versus more generic foods that don't have this type of storytelling around them? And so that was where then our grocery store trips fit into, into our research. And to give a bit of an idea of what some of like this language looked like, for example, on a quinoa package, um, from Bob's Red Mill, it says, The mighty grains that nourished the world's greatest ancient civilizations. This amazing plant was domesticated thousands of years ago near Lake Titicaca, high on the plateaus of the Andes. It was a mainstay in the diet of the ancient Incas who considered it a sacred crop. And that's the type of thing you'll see for all of these products, just on the front and back of their packaging. Sometimes it would be just in the Amazon description of the product. It was always like this food helped all these people a really long time ago, and it will also help you. So that's a general tone you'll find. Yeah. And can you say a little bit more about that? Like, because, I mean, you know, for those who haven't seen the article, there are, you know, a good deal, there's a good deal of that research that's presented in chart form. So you have nicely laid out uh, examples of the language. And of course, if one need only read through it to see the kind of recurring patterns that are there on the label. So we have kind of keywords and, and styles of, of telling the story that repeat for these products. Um, so we have that, that sort of qualitative element, but then you also do a really nice quantitative a- you know, analysis of the price. So, I mean, would it be fair to say that um, at least in that quantitative side, that the same products or similar products without the language, without the storytelling, and oftentimes not appearing in the higher-end grocery stores, uh, are those being offered at a much lower price point? That's right. So what we found was that both in terms of the price of quinoa and chia and in terms of 
the just like general availability of ancient greenwashed food, that there was this correlation between between those things. So the more expensive products were going to be more likely to have that ancient greenwashing. And that it's not just a price markup because of the ancient greenwashing. Ancient greenwashing is co-occurring with all these other third-party certification seals, things that are deemed organic and and various other rainforest-friendly type uh, certifications. So there's this kind of clustering then of these markers, we argue of status markers, right? That are marking these foods as the type of prestige foods that people who can afford to purchase this kind of relief from the anxiety of feeling like they're contributing to climate change or to global food injustice, because what you're paying for is essentially that pardon, right? Of like, if I buy this, then I am participating in this long sustainability with the Aztecs, with the Inca, with ancient West Africans, with ancient Romans. And it's complicated in that way. So we we want to be clear, like we're not advocating ancient greenwashing for all. We're not saying that that should be something wild, widely available at, you know, basic convenience stores. What we are asking though, we're asking people to recognize that these types of messages, they mask over the injustices that are occurring in our food systems. And we want people to develop their sort of critical literacy to recognize when this is happening and to recognize that it's a distraction from any real progress towards collective action and policy change that would create more just food systems. I, th- I think, you know, that's, I mean, I think the last, you know, your last couple of sentences are really where it's, it's important uh, because many would argue or just say dismissively, well, this is just a case of buyer beware. No one is shocked that the same product costs more at Whole Foods than it does at the local grocery store or, you know, uh, in your neighborhood. Um, and that people understand, you know, maybe in terms of just principle of buyer beware. Yeah, your certain group is going to be marketed to in a way that appeals to them to a certain education level or a certain level of affluence and that we just need to navigate that. But I think the point that you've made in the article really nicely is that these aren't just marketing issues, that these are social justice issues and social justice issues about what's going on now and also how that has been, how that arrives from a history of injustice uh, that's been perpetrated uh you know, through our agricultural systems and political systems and so on. So could you say a little bit more about the connection, you know, between the language and that kind of injustice? Because I think it's it's not just a matter of, of oh, that's just good marketing language. What is, could you, could you say a little bit about the, you know, how the language of greenwashing participates in, in problematic stereotypes, for example? In my understanding, it all comes back to the stripping away of history and the stripping away of the political context. So in the same way that ancient greenwashing oversimplifies and creates this fictitious history of the past, you know, you bring up this example, Bob, of this BBC article with some ancient corn that's being brought back. I haven't read that Mm. article, Mm. but I know the flavor of it, if you Mm. will. And I think that so much of what we see with the way the ancient agricultural past is engaged with today, it's the sense that uh, you're just going to be able to uproot 
an ancient technology, an ancient crop, and somehow replant it in the present, stripped of all of its social and political context, and expect it to somehow do sustainability. But when we look more critically at the past, when we work to understand what was happening in ancient times and colonial times in the present, we see that it's much more complicated than that, that sustainability is always an inherently political thing. And so ancient greenwashing is one small manifestation of this bigger problem in which sustainability is treated as apolitical and ahistorical. So if we can, if we could say that that all of us uh, here on the podcast today are are in in some sense involved in food studies research. I think one of the questions that often comes at us from outside of the field is uh, the question of well, what should we eat or how should we eat? You know, so once we develop the critical awareness of the kinds of practices that are at work and oftentimes covered up by marketing and by other forces, uh, how do we navigate? Uh, this foodscape or sort of what should we do? So um, could you maybe offer up um, uh, what your hopes for the article are in terms of the impact you'd like to create, but also what does the information uh, that you've provided us with, uh, you know, what's the takeaway from that? I think definitely like a a starting point, because it's funny that you asked that because whenever we were doing this research, I remember all of my friends would always be like, oh, I noticed this ancient greenwashing that you were talking about. Like, should I be eating quinoa now? I feel so bad about it. And I was like, no, don't feel bad about it. Like, you're still allowed to eat quinoa. You know, I think like definitely a starting point for people that engage with the article and the idea at all is to be aware. Like awareness is always going to be that first thing. If nobody's aware, then nobody's going to do anything about it. Um, and to, you know, like notice where you have, like where one has the ability to make purchases that do feel more uh, sustainable and more that you're almost like, yeah, like Chelsea was saying, paying for the, for, for the more green aspect of all of that, right? Like being able to recognize when one can do that themselves and also how other people can't and not to impose judgment on people for not being able to always make the more sustainable purchase because not everybody like can go to Whole Foods and buy a narrative, you know, the way that some people can. So I think definitely that's a starting point is just being aware about all of that and just being responsible and really like which the whole point right is to think critically about the products that we're buying and where they come from and why are they being pitched to us in a certain way yeah I you know I remember that at the very beginning this article did grow out of kind of activities that I came up with for my classes and I would see students right after class in the dining hall and they would try to shield their bowl of quinoa from my eyes and or say you ruined quinoa for me and I just feel like no like I'm not here to we're not here to tell anybody what they should be eating or anything like that but I agree with Clara that the first point I think should be this kind of introspection if there's any sort of um if our paper can catalyze anything or this conversation can catalyze anything, it's that people become more introspective about their attitudes around the choices that they make when buying food. So 
with myself, I think that I am somebody that in the past was very, I don't know, kind of easily seduced by this type of marketing because I was the type of kid that would make ancient Egyptian bread in the toaster oven growing up. And so like the thought that I could eat food that was going to somehow connect me to an ancient Maya priestess was like a very compelling idea. But so I think that the first thing we want with this paper is that people build that critical literacy to examine what work is this package of quinoa doing on me? What is it trying to get me to feel? What is it trying to distract me from? But then, you know, we, we hope, as so many others who are working in this space do, is that it doesn't just end with that introspective level, right? That people then take that energy that, you know, might have been going into comparing these different labels or things like this, making these different decisions, and try to mobilize that energy towards meaningful change on the ground. And that, I think, is going to look different for every person. It's going to look different depending on your own positionality, so whatever identities you have, um, and then also what communities you're a part of. And so we hope that this catalyzes a sort of introspection, but then also it is part of a larger, broader sweep of efforts that will transform our food system in meaningful ways through policy changes, through collective action, and things like that. I think that's uh, it's really important how you've how you framed that at the end because I think both of you were hitting upon uh, what often appears as a kind of policing of our food system as a reaction against you know the bad consumer choice, but both sides of that equation place all of the burden upon the individual consumer. Either you know the options become either you do buy this and are seduced by the packaging, or you you're now awake to the to the problems that are there and now you're choosing not to purchase it but once again those are both stuck at the level of the individual consumer and of course the way that if we want to call this broadly a kind of ideology that's that's at work it's something that's much larger than any individual and can easily be ascribed even to any one actor or individual behind it but these things arise over long periods of time uh, and through all sorts of structures so that movement so even if the most basic um, second step that comes out of the introspection is then talking to others about this, sharing experiences and figuring out what kind of community that you're in, then that becomes that sort of crucial second step of kind of moving away from isolated consumers trying yeah. to navigate all of this. Exactly. Because I think that corporations that are guilty of ancient greenwashing, they want it to be seen as this individual choice that you opt in or opt out of. And we have to see it as a system. Because I think, I mean, good marketing always manages to uh, insinuate its way into the own, our own personal narratives that we, that we, that we tell ourselves about who we are and who we'd like to be. So it's, it's, so it, storytelling is a part of, of who we are as, as, as a, as a strange creature that is the human being. So, uh, so it, it's, it's both a powerful tool, but one that we're also susceptible to. So maybe as a, as a, as a last, uh, a bit of reflection here. Uh, could I ask each of you to to, to maybe just say uh, a few things about uh, where this research has now led you uh, in terms of your work that you're that you're doing in the f- or now or in the future? This directly impacted. So, in in um, my intro, you you mentioned that like I 
worked on my senior thesis about yerba mate, and this research impacted a, a good chunk of that, actually. I did have a whole portion that was just looking at how marketing techniques, um, I remember there was analysis that it was called like the salvation through, yeah, salvation through the primitive, I remember was a, was a quote that I read when I was researching that and just seeing how like that, and mate is something that is very personal to me because my family is from Argentina. And so, um, so seeing that um, marketing technique on something that to me is like, this is a, like a huge part of like my heart and my identity. It was like, ugh, I don't like seeing that, um, you know? So uh, it's definitely um, made me a lot more, I think, conscious about what I'm seeing in terms of food marketing. Um, and so that just, for me, just plays into my daily life. Like right now, I'm not really um, involved in, in uh, research or anything like that. But um, I, I like the application just of this research, how it's impacted how I view food. Like it's it's changed a lot of how I think about products and how I talk about it to other people as well. Like for me, I always love having conversations about food with other people. Um, and I, so I, I think it's good to even just in a very like base level just be talking about it with folks and people are are re- usually interested and receptive even though sometimes you know it takes them a minute to sort of understand what I'm trying to say but <laughs> yeah yeah I love that idea that you don't have to be researching this stuff to have a connection point to it because if you're eating then you're participating in this in some way um I have been since since Claire and I worked on this article together, I had a book come out this month called Rooting in a Useless Land, Ancient Farmers, Celebrity Chefs, and Environmental Justice in Yucatan. It came out this month from the University of California Press. And in that book, I look at the ways that these claims around ancient farmers get wrapped up in what celebrity chefs are doing and how archaeology can help us kind of untangle what some of these claims about sustainability mean both for the past and for the present. And I'm carrying a lot of that work forward now with new research that I'm starting on the colonial origins of the cattle industry in Mexico and using archaeology and work with uh, communities in Mexico to understand how those legacies of colonial cattle farming persist today and how we can understand deep histories of resistance to some of the extractive dynamics of colonial cattle farming, how we can understand these also as histories of resistance. Wonderful. Thank you both so much, Chelsea and Clara, for joining us today on the Gastronomica podcast. Listeners will be able to read the full article in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, issue 23.3, now available online. For more details, visit gastronomica.org. Join us again next week as we talk with Jed Hilton about culinary labor and notions of sustainability in the world of fine dining. And subscribe to the Gastronomica podcast feed on your favorite platform to stay updated on our newest episodes this season. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.